0: It was about a year ago, my life began to fall apart. It was springtime, which is the end of the rainy season in my country. That means the roads are dry enough to go to war. Ugh, I'm so tired of war. Ever since when I was a boy and killed Goliath, I've been, I've been a man at war. I'm, I'm sick of the bloodshed. Then it was the Philistines, now it's the Ammonites, next it'll be... It'll be someone else. I know that as, as king, I'm supposed to lead my men into battle. That's what God wants. I just, I don't have it in me this time. So I sent Joab, my friend, and commander. They, uh, they didn't need me. <laughs> they, they routed the Ammonites in one day. Now, I bet I know what you're thinking. You think I'm a coward. Well, <laughs> With all due respect, you don't know me, and I'm no coward. I've killed hundreds of men in my lifetime. I'm just tired, and yet I knew it was my duty as the shepherd of God's people, as the king, as the ultimate commander to lead the troops, and I said, no, I was unfaithful. That was my first mistake, which led to my second mistake. It was hot that night. It was one of those nights where you just can't stop sweating That's why she probably thought she'd be safe to bathe on the roof, and she was not safe. I got up, and I went to the palace roof, and little did she know, it was the only vantage point where she could be seen. And when the moonlight caught her body, it took my breath away. She was so beautiful, and I've seen a lot of beautiful women. And I knew that I should look away, that it was a mistake. She was not mine. And yet I, I, I chose to linger and I was filled with uncontrollable lust like a storm. I called for my servant and I asked him even at the late hour to go and figure out who this woman was and he came back quickly and informed me that she was named Bathsheba. Oh, Bathsheba. She was the daughter of Eliam who was the son of one of my advisors. I knew the name sounded familiar. I remember when she was a little girl and used to run around the palace and my, how she has grown. I sent my servant back to bring her to my private chambers and it's weird looking back, he couldn't look me in the eye. He looked away, he knew. I didn't know but he knew and yet I was his king and he had to listen. I mean, I, I was just planning to talk with her. But I did far more than talk. She was so young and, and confused and scared. I remember when I consummated my lust, she just wept quietly. I mean, what, what was I thinking? Oh, a 50 year old man. It, it, it's, it's shocking how you can go so quickly from. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing to, I deserve everything. I have many wives. I have a whole kingdom at my command, but I did not have her, and I wanted her. And that was my ultimate mistake. I, I sent her out. She left in shame, obviously, before the sun rose uh, to cover for me. And I thought I was good. And then I got a note a couple days later or a couple weeks later that she was pregnant with my child. So I had to come up with another cover-up scheme, yet another mistake. She was married to a man named Uriah the Hittite. He was a mercenary warrior. And Uriah, get this, get the irony of this, he was away at war. <laughs> he was doing what I should have been doing. He was fighting for me. And I called him back to give him a weekend leave. I figured he would go make love to his beautiful wife and everyone would think the child was his and it would all be good but you're right get this more irony he listened to the edict i'd put in place years before that soldiers on leave were not to be intimate with their wives so they could stay sharp he listened he went down and he slept at the gate with the rest of the soldiers I had to come up with another plan, so I brought him into my chambers and opened my table to him. He didn't know why he was invited. He was just a mercenary warrior. Little did he know what he was getting into. And I got him very, very drunk, and I sent him out, thinking a drunk man would surely not listen. And I watched him stumble past his house down to the city gates. What am I going to do with this guy? You can see my hands were tied. I sent him back to war with a note in his pocket for my friend and told him to send Uriah into the heat of the battle. I mean, I figured he could survive. I mean, it's up to God, right? But Joab knew exactly what I wanted, and he pressed the battle forward, and Uriah lost his life. When the body came back, I, I paid for the funeral. I, I even mustered up a few tears. And then after a few weeks of mourning passed, I took Bathsheba to be my wife, and I look like the hero. I looked like I was doing a favor for an advisor, a, a young woman. It's about to give birth to an orphan son. And then I just tried to go on. I thought I got away with it. And then a year passed. A year and I got a visit from Nathan the prophet. I don't know about you but prophets kind of creep me out a little bit. They got the beady eyes and they're just staring at you, always pronouncing things like they can just see inside you. And Nathan told me this weird story. He said "There there was a rich man with tons of sheep and vast estate and then in the same town there was another family with one sheep and it was like a member of the family and this rich man had guests in the town. He threw a banquet and he went violently by force and took the family's one sheep and used it as a meal for the banquet. I said, who is this man? I want his head. (laughs) Hashtag blind spot. Of course, Nathan told me the, the man was me. The sheep was Bathsheba. Have you ever had that devastating moment where you had something you didn't see Something deeply broken in your life, something that you had done that you didn't fully comprehend, and it's revealed to you. I mean, it broke me in ways that I can't even begin to explain. And I did what only I could do, and I put on sackcloth, and I covered myself with ashes, and I went to the temple day and night. I didn't leave it. I told my servants to leave me alone in solitude, and Nathan had told me that in the future someone would take my wives and that my, my boy, would not last the year and I just cried out to God it's all I knew and I ripped my clothes and I prayed and I cast myself on the mercy and the grace of God see I'm a I'm a dirty dirty man and I need to be made clean and and only God can make me clean while I was there I I wrote a prayer it's okay, I'd love to share it with you. I've I've given it to our musicians to make into a song, and it's become my prayer of confession. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Oh, God, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity, creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, obviously, I'm not King David, and uh, sorry for the poor acting. I, I wanted to do, place us in the position of understanding the context of the psalm we're going to look at. We're in a series called Greatest Hits, so we're looking at, at passages of Scripture that down through the ages, generation after generation after generation of Jesus followers, thinks Seth, uh, hold on to. They kind of rise above the fray, and this is one of them, uh, Psalm 51 there's seven penitential or confession psalms in our psalter or our prayer book the same one Jesus used so Jesus would use this psalm to pray and that's incredible to think about this is by far the one that's most well-known, and we're going to look at it. And to understand this, if you look in your Bibles, and if you have your Bibles, get them out, or look on your phone, and you'll see it. Some Psalms have this, not all, sometimes we're told who wrote them, but this is for the director of music, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. We can't understand Psalm 51. We can't properly live into it ourselves unless we understand the story found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. It came from that. So I wanted to try to get us in that mindset of what it might be like. Took a little creative license, but tried to stay historically and biblically accurate. So let's get into the psalm a little bit. And I I want us again, every time we go into poetry or the Psalter, we're not, we shouldn't approach it like we do one of Paul's letters or even one of the Gospels where we're kind of dissecting it. This is poetry. We're meant to feel it. We're meant to enter into it. And so I want to... uh, go into the text a little bit, not to dissect it, but to reveal some things that may not be apparent uh, that kind of lie underneath in the Hebrew language that I think are beautiful and helpful as we live into the psalm. So first of all, the psalm is anchored in verse 1. It says, God, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. This is what my friend Tim calls a hyperlink. You push on a hyperlink, it takes you somewhere else. Hebrew readers would know exactly what David's talking about. He's talking about Exodus 34, 6 where God appears to Moses and reveals who he is. And in that uh, text, it says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. David knows his only shot is for God to show up and be who God is, who God has revealed himself to be. So the whole entire confession is anchored there. Now, in the really creative poetic device, because David is a poet, He uses three different words for sin in the Hebrew, and they're translated differently in our English, which they should be. That's why we can't tell what he's doing. And then he repeats them, and then he uses three different words for cleanliness or being made clean, and then he repeats them. So I want to briefly go into those and kind of step into them and talk about the words a little bit, and then we'll talk about how this psalm provides us today a pathway for confession. How's that sound? All right, great. Here we go. Uh, So three words to describe David's actions. If you're really interested in going deeper, the Bible Project, our friends there, they have in their Bad Word series, they have a video, a brief video on each of these words if you want to dig deeper. But here's an overview of that. So the first word for sin that David uses is transgressions. That's probably how it's translated in your text. It's sometimes translated rebellion or trespass. Um, It means to, uh, God ask us to do something, we do something else. At the heart of it, though, it's the violating the trust of another. So this isn't Um, stealing from someone we don't know, it's stealing from someone we know. That's the word. Paul uses the the Greek idea when he talks about Adam was the original image bearer, and Adam broke that trust with God. He was in covenant relationship with God and broke that trust. That's the word uh, here. Second word is iniquity. Uh, That's a behavior that is uh, crooked. So when you think of this word, just think crooked. This is when God wants us to take a straight path and we take a crooked path path. And uh, literally the Hebrew word means to be bent or crooked. I think of like a boomerang. The effect of sin just keeps coming back on us again and again and again. My wife is the handy one in the relationship. And so she knows what I can do in projects. And one year she was doing a project and she sent me to Home Depot to get like eight foot boards. If you go there, they've just got them there. And she said, John, focus. Listen to me. Don't come home with warped boards, bent boards. I was like, no warped board. Okay, I got it. And so I'm there, I go there, and I'm literally, if you, I'm sure you've done this, you're, you're holding them out. And sure enough, some of them are just like, whoop. And if I brought those home, one, I'd be in deep trouble. But if we tried to build with that, the entire project would be crooked. That's the idea in this word. Three, this is the more of the overarching, you'll see it's used six, uh, six times in, in David's uh, psalm here. It kind of means moral failure. In the Greek, it means to miss the mark. God's put a target. The target is love God, love others, and we miss it, miss it, miss it. It was an archery term, so like, whoop, you know, miss, miss. That's the idea. Paul uh, builds on it and uses this word. He said it's so pervasive, sin, that it, 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 he almost personifies it. So it has a life of its own. It's just kind of lurking out there. You're not gonna remember much of that, but here's the point that David's trying to make that I want us to get, that sin is multifaceted. It's not simple. It's not this kind of like, oh, I just do something wrong and I stop doing it. David's like, oh, oh no, 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 it's really complex. And this is the way I, I like to teach you that sin has two dimensions. One is our bad behavior. So that's, this is the, when we think about sin, this is the one we think about first and foremost. Um, somebody does something wrong and you're like, that's bad behavior. And we think that's sin, so we just, the the remedy is, can you just stop doing that bad behavior? So when, you know, uh, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock, we were all talking about it, we're like, that's bad behavior, he shouldn't have done that, he should not slap people, and that's kind of how we think about sin, and that's true, he shouldn't slap people. But when people tell me, like, oh, the the world's so bad, everybody's misbehaving, and I'm like, oh, it's way worse than that, (laughs) It's, it's way, way worse than that. And that's the second dimension of sin. The second dimension of sin is this idea that our hearts are bent or our hearts are crooked, that that sin has entered into our world and and just distorted and deformed things. Dorothy Sayers, she was a friend of C.S. Lewis. I love what she says. She said, sin is a deep interior dislocation at the center of every human heart. The heart is our control center. And there's something that being born into a crooked world that our hearts get bent and crooked at the very core of who we are, we have a natural propensity to run away from God and try to be our own gods and do something else. It's way worse than we think it is. To acknowledge our sin, for David to acknowledge his sin, to be made clean, we have to understand both aspects. I've lived in a lot of older homes in in my lifetime and even the one we just moved into, this was the case. Usually a home more than two or three years old, you'll see this. You'll walk in, and somewhere in the house, you'll see a crack on the wall. You probably have this somewhere in your house. And when we got our first house, it was an old house, like 30 years old, and we paid this money for it. I'm like, there's a crack. Like, you know, that's not right. Let's fix it. So I put caulking and painted, and what do you think happened? The crack came right back. Because, as someone who knows what they're talking about told me, it's the foundation. The foundation's settled. You're not going to be able to take care of that, John. (laughs) You can't do it with cosmetic stuff. That's the idea of sin here. There's the cosmetic thing going on, right? That's the bad behavior that is cosmetic. And then there's the foundational issue. There's a personal aspect of sin that I do bad things. I misbehave. Absolutely. But there's also a foundational collective human condition to sin that David knew very well. David brings both these things up in his psalms. He says, my transgressions, my sin, I've done what is evil. He acknowledges his bad behavior, but he also says, surely I was sinful from birth. The primary image David uses or the metaphor throughout the psalm is that sin has made him dirty, which makes all the sense in the world in the ancient Near East, and you see Jesus interacting with the Pharisees all the time around this. They believed that, that sin and unrighteousness made you dirty, and that holiness or righteousness made you clean. It was a huge thing in their culture. And they, would, they were very embodied creatures, very embodied worshipers, the Jewish people. And when they would see their sin, or see collective sin of the people, and they would mourn and lament, they would put on sackcloth which was made of black goat hair, just incredibly uncomfortable. And, and they would sit in it, and they would dump ashes and dust on their head to remind them that they came from dust and they'll return to dust, that they are frail. We still do this on Ash Wednesday. We did it this year when we celebrated it here at New Hope. It reminds us of our frailty. And oftentimes they'd rip the sackcloth and cry out very demonstratively because they didn't want their sin to hide or look there. They wanted to come clean and show everyone how dirty they were. This is no doubt what is going on with Dave in this imagery of being dirty, uh, David uh, or or Jesus, what he said: If the cities that I preached to would have understood my message, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. They, they would have. He's using that imagery. They would have understood how sin makes us dirty. So David uses the, these boom, 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 these three words for sin. It's comprehensive, and then he repeats them in case we don't get it. But then there's hope because this is a psalm of confession. And David, boom, 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 gives us three words for God taking dirty things and making them clean again. I got a few props here that, uh, that I'll use. The first one is the word uh, blot out or to erase. And when we think about that in, in our modern mindset, we think of like hitting the delete key on like a Word document or something, right? It's very easy. Oh, it wasn't like that. They used animal skins and wrote on them. If you made a mistake, it's like, ugh. You know, there's no, there's no scribal whiteout. It was a huge process. I think the best illustration I can give is, like, for those of you who have tattoos, a, a whole new industry has become uh, getting your tattoo erased. But it's a tedious process. It's expensive. It's painful. And, you know, a number of people get tattoos when they're, like, you know, 17, 18, that when they're 45, they're like, yeah Or if you, like, dated someone and fell in love with somebody named Cindy and got Cindy tattoo, and then you marry Rebecca. That's not cool. It's that idea. It's an exhaustive process, but that's the heart of the word. So, I mean, it's got, the, it's got the whiteboard flavor. So, I don't know what your sins are, but, I mean, ones that we probably all struggle with, greed and gossip and pride, you know, lust. You know, God can come in and make dirty things clean again. That's the idea behind the word. God can even come in, and if you have a Cindy tattoo, you know, just, I'm not no, just it's not, it's not that. God can't erase your Cindy tattoos. All right, so that's the idea in the word there. All right, so blot out. That's one Hebrew word. The second one is, uh, is wash away or to pummel. This is the idea of uh, washing clothes. It means to tread or pummel. That's how they would wash clothes, you know, using force. And, you know, they didn't have, you know, a, a, a washing machine and dryer, obviously, I, uh, I don't know about you, I hate when I'm about to go out somewhere or I'm at a restaurant and I drop food on my shirt. I just feel like an idiot. And so this is a tension in our marriage because as soon as I'll do it, I get up and I'm saying, excuse me, honey, and I go to the bathroom and I'm like, and I'm like spraying myself with water and I, I try to get it out, but she's like, you look like a fool because now you're just wet. And so we have this thing going on. We've never rectified it. It just continues to be an issue in our marriage. But I... Uh, I, I really love this, the old OxyClean Max Force gel stick. This is my friend. I'm, I spill stuff all the time. So I come up before I do laundry, it has like the little, little rubber things there, and I'm just like, Arr! and then I stick it in, and it's, it's fail proof. It just takes it every. This is the word. This is the idea. This is what David didn't know about this, but that's, he would have he used it if he knew. All right. The third word is, uh, is uh, cleanse or scour clean. This is more of scrubbing and cleaning our bodies. And so when we were in Israel, they had these called mikvah baths everywhere from the first century. And you had to enter the purification baths, the mikvah baths. There's a ton of them right outside the temple to get clean. This is the idea. I did a a little, uh, I came across these stats somewhere. They're kind of gross, so get get ready. But the human body is made up of around 10 trillion cells. Your skin makes up 16% of your body weight which means uh, you have about 1.6 trillion skin cells. Now here's where it gets gross. Between 30,000 and 40,000 of them fall off every hour. You guys are starting to scoot away from each other. You're, you're literally like leaving some of yourself here at church, literally. I used to uh, make fun of my friends growing up when I saw that they use this thing called a loofah. Do you know what a loofah is? And then I read this. And now here I brought my loofah today. The loofah is my best friend. And uh, especially guys, don't judge. Um, You're going to thank me later for this. Like when you're using a loofah in the shower, you're scrubbing death off of you. It's just just all those skin cells. You don't leave them on the couch or the carpet or in your bed. You leave them in the shower where they should be. You'll thank me later. All right, so that's the idea. The loofah. David didn't know about loofahs either, probably. But that's the idea. And then he, he hits it again. He repeats them again. But then he builds up to this pinnacle, Psalm 5110. It says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit or renew that dislocation that's in me. This is his chief prayer. This is the the center of it. And here's what he understands that we have to get today. Only God can make us clean. Only God can make us clean. So Psalm 51 gives us a pathway of confession. I'd like to just walk you through it. Three simple steps. They all start with an A for whatever reason. You can remember that. And it provides for us as we enter into discipleship with Jesus a way to experience cleanliness. The first one's the hardest one. The first one's a deal breaker for some people, but it is absolutely essential, and it is to admit we are unclean. I don't know if you'll remember much of what I teach you. Maybe this is your first Sunday, and it'll be your last. I don't know. Some of you have been around for a while. Here's what I, one thing I want you to hear that is in the Scriptures from beginning to end. It is not our sins that keep us from God. It is not our sins that keep us from God. It's our self-righteousness that keeps us from God we own our sins, if we confess our sins, that's the portal to God's grace. Church people struggle to get that. The Pharisees struggle to get that. People Magazine in the 80s did this thing called a Sindex, and they asked people to kind of, you know, confess how often they sinned. And uh, this is back in the 80s. I don't know what it would be today. I don't know if it would be more or less, but these people back in the 80s, they said that they committed 4.64 sins a month. <laughs> I commit that many sins before my morning coffee. Like, I don't even know, you know. It's like, goodness gracious, our propensity to self-righteousness blocks us from God's grace. The first step in the path of confession is just owning it, that we're broken, that we are dirty, we're a mess. And it's not shame there. It's not who we are in our identity because we're dearly loved. It's just the state of things. We see this all over scripture. Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. Paul declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's unequivocally true, the writers of scripture scriptures say. Here's a saying I hate that church people often say is, uh, they say, love the sinner, hate the sin. I can't stand that statement. I think the better one is love the sinner, hate your sin. We'd be a better church. We'd be better, better world if we started by looking at the brokenness within ourselves. G.K. Chesterton, he was a British writer and theologian. Uh, The newspaper ran an editorial and they wanted people to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? And Chesterton simply wrote back, he was kind of cheeky, he wrote back, I am, yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Can you imagine just for a moment if we, if Jesus followers started with that mindset? Not that there's not other things messed up, that's not what I'm saying. But if we started not from a place of self-righteousness, but brokenness and utter dependence on God's grace. This is absolutely instrumental for practicing this pathway of confession. Here's one of my favorite quotes of all time. Uh, It's by Cornelius Plantago in a book he wrote uh, about sin called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It's a great book. He says, for slippage in our consciousness of sin, like many fashionable follies, may be pleasant, but it's also devastating. Self-deception about our sin is a narcotic, a tranquilizing and disorienting suppression of our spiritual central nervous system. What's devastating about it is that when we lack an ear for the wrong notes in our lives, the music of creation and the still greater music of grace whistle right through our skulls, causing no catch of breath, and leaving no residue. Moral beauty begins to bore us, and the idea that the human race needs a savior sounds quaint. I have a friend that struggles with porn addiction, and he's invited me into that journey, and encouragement, and accountability, and I really appreciated his courage in that. And uh, he was away on a business trip and, uh, and fell into that addiction. He was stressed, and, and it kind of triggered that. And, and so he called me, and that was a good conversation, and we prayed. And the, but he knew the, the more difficult conversation was to be with his wife because he understood uh, he's in a covenant relationship, and looking at another woman in a sexual way breaks that. And he had to confess that to her. And it wasn't the first time. It was a hard conversation. It's really difficult. And he said this time he felt like he needed, he needed something more. So he, she was gracious, and, and then he said he, he went out back, and they have a chicken coop. And he said he put on some really old, dingy clothes. And he sat down in the chicken coop, and he just covered himself with dirt. Just dumped it on his head. And it had poop mixed in and the whole deal, and just wiped it on his face. And he said his wife was so incredibly Jesus-like, because she came out and just sat kind of in the corner, gave him space. And he said they wept, and they prayed, and they wept, and they prayed, and he repented. He said it was one of the most holy moments that he's ever experienced. Our first step to tasting God's grace and getting confession and being made clean is to admitting we're dirty. Second step, another A, acknowledge that only God can make us clean. I am troubled by how many followers of Jesus are turning to what I'll call the self-help industry to try to get themselves clean. Please hear this clearly. There's so much good advice and there's really good things in the self-help industry. I'm not not hating on it. It's a piece. But when it's just that... It's not sufficient. That can maybe clear up the cosmetic issues, but it doesn't deal with the deep down brokenness. And Jesus, all the time, we're talking to the Pharisees that like on the outside, they had everything locked in. And he's like, oh, you have no idea. He called them cups that were clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. He said that your whitewashed tombs, clean and white on the outside, but filled with death on the inside. He told them the problem comes from their heart the very center prophet jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure who can understand it my wife likes to talk about when we when we see our sins and we're just dealing with the bad behavior and not like the internal mechanisms it's like, it's like trying to play that game a whack-a-mole do you remember that game it's like boom i got that one boom got that woo, woo, woo. and then you're just exhausted because the issue is more deep down I lived as a, as a bachelor my, my first house away from, from my home growing up uh, with some buddies. We were single, and uh, we were dating, and, you know, we, we, it was a great time in, in our lives. And one day we came home from work, and there was the most horrid smell. I can't even imagine. It just burned your nostrils. It was like something just literally was dying. And we started to blame one another. When's the last time you showered? And what's, you know, what's your room? Clean up your room, and now I'm bringing over a, a young lady tonight, those kind of things. And we tried everything, we went, we went to, to Target and we bought the, the potpourri spray and we had candles just lit everywhere. Then it just smelled like cinnamon death or like cherry death, it was like, it was like no, no better. And finally we were at the end, we didn't know what to do and it was one of these really old farmhouses and had the big metal grate and the heating apparatus was down below it. And so I shined a flashlight down there and I kid you not, on the heating apparatus which was just really hot, was the roasting body of a mouse. Just death. And so you know, we got, we, we got, using you know, duct tape and a, you know, we got the thing out of there. It was really disgusting, but then we were good. And that's kind of what we do with our sin natures when we're just, we're trying to like light candles and, you know, do the little song and dance that we're okay when it's a deep down heart issue that only God can deal with. David knew this. David's like, God doesn't, you don't want my sacrifices. We're way past that. My only hope, God, is that you create in me a clean heart. I need a new heart. I need you to set right within me. Create, that word in the Hebrew, uh, God is always, always, when that word's used, the object of the word. We see the same word in Genesis 1-1. God created the heavens and the earth. It's only something God can do. When David's saying create in me a clean heart, it's only something God, there's no plan B. And final step, and this is really important too, because this takes our efforts and our will. Ask God to make us clean. We have to say, okay, I acknowledge you're the only one, but I want you to make me clean. I'm broken, I'm desperate, I'm dirty. First John 1:9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, AA, the steps in AA, and some of you are familiar with them. They're beautiful. And a friend just told me they were actually created within a church as a discipleship program. I didn't know that. And now they've been used all over the world. I think the church needs to take them back a little bit and start using them as a discipleship program. The first three steps, I have a friend that's, that's writing a book on, on them and, and within the church context. And he sums up the first three steps like this. He says, um, I can't, we can't but God you can and i think we're going to let you that's it i mean that's kind of that's that's the point that david's in that's where we come to the point of confession like i i i got nothing else i'm dirty i have nowhere to go you're my only hope frederick the great he was a ruler in in what is now germany and he was visiting a prison in berlin and people knew who he was, and he came in with all of his guards, and he's passing cell after cell after cell, and every cell, the person's like, I'm innocent, I didn't do it, they got the wrong person, I swear, set me free, and he just kinda, he's rolling his eyes the whole time. And then finally he gets to this cell, and the man's just quiet, with his head down in his hands, he's like, how about you, sir, are you, are you innocent? And he's like, oh no, I did it. And he said, guards, uh, let this man free. Get this man out of here. I don't want this criminal to pervert these virtuous, innocent men. <laughs> I mean, the beauty of the idea is that confession's scary. Don't get me wrong, but it, it sets us free. It sets us free. Someone once said, it's, it's our secrets that will kill us. And if you've ever read Crime and Punishment, the main character there, Raskolnikov, he he commits this double murder. It's a very simple plot, and he gets away with it. Oh, but he doesn't get away with it because the sin eats him alive. And that's what happens to sin that lurks in the dark. That's what, I mean, David, a year, a year. And that's why he said, God, I need you to come down into my, my inmost parts. That's the word. This, this word, that word, the same Hebrew term, uh, was used for um, water sources that were plugged up. And people would do this intentionally in the ancient Near East to not share water. And he said, unplug it, unplug it, God, like set me free from this. And we know as we stand back and what David longed for and hoped for and cried out to God for was fully accomplished in Jesus Christ on the cross. And, and I, I say Jesus is the only way because it's the only way. The only way, because our problem is so immense, is for God himself to put on flesh and come here and stand in the gap and bear all of my considerable sin and all of your sin and your sin and your sin and your sin and your sin, and your sin the sins of the world, take it all on and forever break it and make things right again. And two... Conquer the evil forces and break the power of sin and death and pay the ransom. All these beautiful analogies we have of what happened at the cross. It is our only hope. And some of us have have taken that step to look to Jesus as our only hope and to turn our eyes to Jesus for salvation. If you haven't, you can do that right now. Just like, stop looking anywhere else. You're not going to find it. There's a mouse burning on the furnace. There's a structural foundational issue and Jesus has taken care of it. And Jesus will make it right. Just look to him right now. But then a lot of us have done that step, and yet we know from experience and from Scripture until we're fully redeemed and Jesus comes back and fully makes all things right, we sin every day. We struggle more than 4.64 times a day, I would guess. And so we need to practice as apprentices of Jesus and disciples of Jesus this rhythm of confession. I would say every day. Taking a moment to look inwardly realize our dirt, and ask God to come in and make us clean. I think it's an essential step for disciples. So I, we've got this pathway. I'd like to practice it right now. I'd like to do it right now. And if, if you're willing, just go ahead and close your eyes and, uh, and just hold out your hands in front of you, just like this, and grip them tight. Everyone. This is us holding on to our sin. This is the sin that is in us, that, that, that operates within us. And I want to start with the right hand. Hey, this right hand is, uh, this is the bad behavior aspect of sin. This is stuff that, that even today, you can probably look back on and be like, oh boy, I was really short with that person this morning, or I cut that person off in traffic, or whatever. Maybe it's, it's more devious than that. And I'm going to give us a moment just for you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal. And, and don't, don't use the intentional, non-intentional thing as an escape. It's, it's the same thing. Fred told me that he kicked his wife under the table one morning and breakfast accidentally, totally accidentally, he was just shifting. He's like, sorry, I didn't mean to kick you, and she responded, and yet you did, and yet you did. (laughs) So it's like stuff we do, like like stuff, we we all do this every day, so this is that stuff. So I want to give you just a second to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. And then our way of asking for forgiveness, we're going to use one of the most ancient prayers in the church. It's called the Jesus Prayer. And it's, it's simply, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. So on the count of three, I want us to pray that. And as we pray it, just open up that hand. Ready? One, two, three. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. All right, let's go to the left hand. The left hand is, uh, is the power of sin that is at work at us in the world. It's the, the crookedness. And it's the stuff we don't see. It's what I would call blind spots. And uh, blind spots keep me up at night. I'm not going to kid you. It's it's that stuff like, how am I hurting people? How am I I caught up in sin and things I can't even measure? Like, we know we are. We know we are. The high priest on Yom Kippur, Jewish Holy Day, would kill a bull to atone for all the sins he committed he wasn't aware of. (laughs) He just knew. He just knew they were there. And so I want to give you a moment just to ask the Holy Spirit, uh, to re- maybe in this moment, to reveal those to you, to, to, to see those. And, and if not, we'll invite Jesus in with the same prayer to forgive us of the things we don't see. So just take a minute, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those things to you. And again, we're going we're gonna to use the Jesus prayer, and we'll say it on, on the count of three. That prayer's reminder is, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And as we say it, we open our hand. Ready? One, two, three. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. So go ahead and stand with me. Uh, that is a practice. You can tailor it. There's nothing biblical about it per se. It's an embodied practice that you can use in your own journey as a disciple. I encourage you to come up with something, a, a rhythm. And I want us to pray this prayer together. It's going to come up on the screen. Literally millions of Christians throughout history and in present day all over the world use this prayer on a daily basis. It's from the Book of Common Prayer, and I really love it. And uh, we actually have printed out uh, the fuller prayer. And if you want to grab a copy, you can, as you leave today, to put it on a fridge or kind of use in your daily rhythm. But I want us to kind of, as we bring, as we get our hearts ready for the table, I want us to pray this prayer together as people that truly believe in the grace of God. have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. As we stay standing, uh, if you have your communion cups, go ahead and get those out. And I, I go back to that, that provocative quote from Cornelius and, and and I think I would just summarize it like this. If coming to the table and really thinking and remembering about what Jesus did for us doesn't take our breath away, we're minimizing our sin. And I think one of the huge problems in the church and in the world is we just like to see ourselves through self-righteous lenses that I'm just a little bad. And what that means is that we only have a little grace operating. We just got a little Savior and a little cross. If we really understand how messed up we are and how messed up the world is and all that God has done and is doing to make things right, it will take our breath away. And we're meant to enter into that uh, as we remember. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, uh, the grace of God is free, but it's not cheap. The scriptures tell us that Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and after he had given thanks, he broke it. So this is my body which is given for you. Do this in memory of me. The same way he took the cup and he said, this cup is the sign of the new covenant, which is given in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You may go ahead and take the elements. If you're willing and able to stay standing, and if you want to stand with us, if you're still seated uh, to worship, um, let's worship a God who's so incredibly gracious, a God who's the only one, they can make us clean